Section 20 of Volume 1D of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1D, Section 20, Chapter 40. Part seven. Requisens, though a man of milder dispositions, could not appease the violent hatred which the revolted Hollanders had conceived against the Spanish government, and the war continued as obstinate as ever. In the siege of Leyden, undertaken by the Spaniards, the Dutch opened the dikes and sluices in order to drive them from the enterprise and the very peasants were active in ruining their fields by an inundation rather than fall again under the hated tyranny of spain but notwithstanding this repulse the governor still pursued the war and the contest seemed too unequal between so mighty a monarch and two small provinces however fortified by nature and however defended by the desperate resolution of the inhabitants the prince of orange therefore in fifteen seventy five was resolved to sue for foreign succour and to make applications to one or other of his great neighbours henry or elizabeth the court of france was not exempt from the same spirit of tyranny and persecution which prevailed among the spaniards and that kingdom, torn by domestic dissensions, seemed not to enjoy at present either leisure or ability to pay regard to foreign interests. But England, long connected both by commerce and alliance with the Netherlands, and now more concerned in the fate of the revolted provinces by sympathy in religion, seemed naturally interested in their defence and as elizabeth had justly entertained great jealousy of philip and governed her kingdom in perfect tranquillity hopes were entertained that her policy her ambition or her generosity would engage her to support them under their present calamities they sent therefore a solemn embassy to london consisting of st aldegondi duza nivelle buys and melson and after employing the most humble supplications to the queen they offered her the possession and sovereignty of their provinces if she would exert her power in their defence there were many strong motives which might impel elizabeth to accept of so liberal an offer she was apprised of the injuries which philip had done to her by his intrigues with the malcontents in england and ireland she foresaw the danger which she must incur from a total prevalence of the Catholics in the Low Countries, and the maritime situation of those provinces, as well as their command over the great rivers, was an inviting circumstance to a nation like the English, who were beginning to cultivate commerce and naval power. But this princess, though magnanimous, had never entertained the ambition of making conquests, or gaining new acquisitions and the whole purpose of her vigilant and active politics was to maintain by the most frugal and cautious expedients 
the tranquillity of her own dominions an open war with the spanish monarchy was the apparent consequence of her accepting the dominion of these provinces and after taking the inhabitants under her protection she could never afterwards in honour abandon them but however desperate their defence might become she must embrace it even further than her convenience or interests would permit for these reasons she refused in positive terms the sovereignty proffered her but told the ambassadors that in return for the good will which the prince of orange and the states had shown her she would endeavour to mediate an agreement for them on the most reasonable terms that could be obtained she sent accordingly sir henry cobham to philip and represented to him the danger which he would incur of losing entirely the low countries if france could obtain the least interval from her intestine disorders and find leisure to offer her protection to those mutinous and discontented provinces philip seemed to take this remonstrance in good part but no accord ensued and war in the netherlands continued with the same rage and violence as before it was an accident that delivered the hollanders from their present desperate situation requesens the governor dying suddenly the spanish troops discontented for want of pay and licentious for want of a proper authority to command them broke into a furious mutiny and threw everything into confusion they sacked and pillaged the cities of maastricht and antwerp and executed great slaughter on the inhabitants they threatened the other cities with a like fate and all the provinces excepting luxembourg united for mutual defence against their violence and called in the prince of orange and the hollanders as their protectors a treaty commonly called the pacification of ghent was formed by common agreement and the removal of foreign troops with the restoration of their ancient liberties was the object which the provinces mutually stipulated to pursue don john of austria natural brother to philip being appointed governor found on his arrival at luxembourg that the states had so fortified themselves and that the spanish troops were so divided by their situation that there was no possibility of resistance and he agreed to the terms required of him the spaniards evacuated the country and these provinces seemed at last to breathe a little from their calamities but it was not easy to settle entire peace while the thirst of revenge and dominion governed the king of spain and while the flemings were so strongly agitated with resentment of past and fear of future injuries the ambition of don john who coveted this great theatre for his military talents engaged him rather to inflame than appease the quarrel and as he found the states determined to impose very strict limitations on his authority he broke all articles seized namur and procured the recall of the spanish army from italy this prince endowed with a lofty genius and elated by the prosperous successes of his youth had opened his mind to vast undertakings and looking much beyond the conquest of the revolted provinces had projected to espouse the queen of scots 
and to acquire in her right the dominion of the british kingdoms elizabeth was aware of his intentions and seeing now from the union of all the provinces a fair prospect of their making a long and vigorous defence against spain she no longer scrupled to embrace the protection of their liberties which seemed so intimately connected with her own safety after sending them a sum of money about twenty thousand pounds for the immediate pay of their troops she concluded a treaty with them in which she stipulated to assist them with five thousand foot and a thousand horse at the charge of the flemings and to lend them a hundred thousand pounds on receiving the bonds of some of the most considerable towns of the netherlands for her repayment within the year it was further agreed that the commander of the english army should be admitted into the council of the states and nothing be determined concerning war or peace without previously informing the queen or him of it that they should enter into no league without her consent that if any discord arose among themselves it should be referred to her arbitration and that if any prince on any pretext should attempt hostilities against her they should send to her assistance an army equal to that which she had employed in their defence this alliance was signed on the seventh of january fifteen seventy eight one considerable inducement to the queen for entering into treaty with the states was to prevent their throwing themselves into the arms of france and she was desirous to make the king of spain believe that it was her sole motive she represented to him by her ambassador thomas wilkes that hitherto she had religiously acted the part of a good neighbour and ally had refused the sovereignty of holland and zealand when offered her had advised the prince of orange to submit to the king and had even accompanied her counsel with menaces in case of his refusal she persevered she said in the same friendly intentions and as a proof of it would venture to interpose with her advice for the composure of the present differences let don john whom she could not but regard as her mortal enemy be recalled let some other prince more popular be substituted in his room let the spanish armies be withdrawn let the flemish be restored to their ancient liberties and privileges and if after these concessions they were still obstinate not to return to their duty she promised to join her arms with those of the king of spain and force them to compliance philip dissembled his resentment against the queen and still continued to supply don john with money and troops that prince though once repulsed at riminont by the valour of the english under norris and though opposed as well by the army of the states as by prince casimir who had conducted to the low countries a great body of germans paid by the queen gained a great advantage over the flemings at gemblours but was cut off in the midst of his prosperity by poison given him secretly as was suspected by orders from philip who dreaded his ambition the prince of parma succeeded to the command who uniting valour and clemency 
negotiation and military exploits made great progress against the revolted flemings and advanced the progress of the spaniards by his arts as well as by his arms during these years while europe was almost everywhere in great commotion england enjoyed a profound tranquillity owing chiefly to the prudence and vigour of the queen's administration and to the wise precautions which she employed in all her measures by supporting the zealous protestants in scotland she had twice given them the superiority over their antagonists had closely connected their interests with her own and had procured herself entire security from that quarter whence the most dangerous invasions could be made upon her she saw in france her enemies the guises though extremely powerful yet counterbalanced by the huguenots her zealous partisans and even hated by the king who was jealous of their restless and exorbitant ambition the bigotry of philip gave her just ground of anxiety but the same bigotry had happily excited the most obstinate opposition among his own subjects and had created him enemies whom his arms and policy were not likely soon to subdue the queen of scots her antagonist and rival and the pretender to her throne was a prisoner in her hands and by her impatience and high spirit had been engaged in practices which afforded the queen a presence for rendering her confinement more rigorous and for cutting off her communication with her partisans in england religion was the capital point on which depended all the political transactions of that age and the queen's conduct in this particular making allowance for the prevailing prejudices of the times could scarcely be accused of severity or imprudence she established no inquisition into men's bosoms she imposed no oath of supremacy except on those who received trust or emolument from the public and though the exercise of every religion but the established was prohibited by statute the violation of this law by saying mass and receiving the sacrament in private houses was in many instances connived at while on the other hand the catholics in the beginning of her reign showed little reluctance against going to church or frequenting the ordinary duties of public worship the pope sensible that this practice would by degrees reconcile all his partisans to the reformed religion hastened the publication of the bull which excommunicated the queen and freed her subjects from their oaths of allegiance and great pains were taken by the emissaries of rome to render the breach between the two religions as wide as possible and to make the frequenting of protestant churches appear highly criminal in the catholics these practices with the rebellion which ensued increased the vigilance and severity of the government but the romanists if their condition were compared with that of the nonconformists in other countries and with their own maxims where they domineered could not justly complain of violence or persecution the queen appeared rather more anxious to keep a strict hand over the puritans who though their pretensions were not so immediately dangerous to her authority 
seemed to be actuated by a more unreasonable obstinacy and to retain claims of which both in civil and ecclesiastical matters it was as yet difficult to discern the full scope and intention some secret attempts of that sect to establish a separate congregation and discipline had been carefully repressed in the beginning of this reign and when any of the established clergy discovered a tendency to their principles by omitting the legal habits or ceremonies the queen had shown a determined resolution to punish them by fines and deprivation though her orders to that purpose had been frequently eluded by the secret protection which these sectaries received from some of her most considerable courtiers but what chiefly tended to gain elizabeth the hearts of her subjects was her frugality which though carried sometimes to an extreme led her not to amass treasures but only to prevent impositions upon her people who were at that time very little accustomed to bear the burdens of government by means of her rigid economy she paid all the debts which she found on the crown with their full interest though some of these debts had been contracted even during the reign of her father some loans which she had exacted at the commencement of her reign were repaid by her a practice in that age somewhat unusual and she established her credit on such a footing that no sovereign in europe could more readily command any sum which the public exigencies might at any time require during this peaceable and uniform government england furnishes few materials for history and except the small part which elizabeth took in foreign transactions there scarcely passed any occurrence which requires a particular detail the most memorable event in this period was a session of parliament held on the eighth of february fifteen seventy six where debates were started which may appear somewhat curious and singular peter wentworth a puritan who had signalized himself in former parliaments by his free and undaunted spirit opened this session with a premeditated harangue which drew on him the indignation of the house and gave great offence to the queen and the ministers as it seems to contain a rude sketch of those principles of liberty which happily gained afterwards the ascendant in england it may not be proper to give in a few words the substance of it he promised that the name of liberty is sweet but the thing itself is precious beyond the most inestimable treasures and that it behooved them to be careful lest contenting themselves with the sweetness of the name they forego the substance and abandon what of all earthly possessions was of the highest value to the kingdom he then proceeded to observe that freedom of speech in that house a privilege so useful to sovereign and subject had been formerly infringed in many essential articles and was at present exposed to the most imminent danger that it was usual when any subject of importance was handled especially if it regarded religion to surmise that these topics were disagreeable to the queen and that the further proceeding in them would draw down her indignation upon their temerity 
that solomon had justly affirmed the king's displeasure to be a messenger of death and it was no wonder if men even though urged by motives of conscience and duty should be inclined to stop short when they found themselves exposed to so severe a penalty that by the employing of this argument the house was incapacitated from serving their country and even from serving the queen herself whose ears besieged by pernicious flatterers were thereby rendered inaccessible to the most salutary truths that it was a mockery to call an assembly a parliament yet deny it that privilege which was so essential to its being and without which it must degenerate into an abject school of servility and dissimulation that as the parliament was the great guardian of the laws they ought to have liberty to discharge their trust and to maintain that authority whence even kings themselves derive their being that a king was constituted such by law and though he was not dependent on man yet was he subordinate to god and the law and was obliged to make their prescriptions not his own will the rule of his conduct that even his commission as god's vice-regent enforced instead of loosening this obligation since he was thereby invested with authority to execute on earth the will of god which is nothing but law and justice that though these surmises of displeasing the queen by their proceedings had impeached in a very essential point all freedom of speech a privilege granted them by a special law yet was there a more express and more dangerous invasion made on their liberties by frequent messages from the throne that it had become a practice when the house was entering on any question either ecclesiastical or civil to bring an order from the queen inhibiting them absolutely from treating of such matters and debarring them from all further discussion of these momentous articles that the prelates emboldened by her royal protection had assumed a decisive power in all questions of religion and required that every one should implicitly submit his faith to their arbitrary determinations that the love which he bore his sovereign forbade him to be silent under such abuses or to sacrifice on this important occasion his duty to servile flattery and complaisance and that as no earthly creature was exempt from fault so neither was the queen herself but in imposing this servitude on her faithful commons had committed a great and even dangerous fault against herself and the whole commonwealth it is easy to observe from this speech that in this dawn of liberty the parliamentary style was still crude and unformed and that the proper decorum of attacking ministers and councillors without interesting the honour of the crown or mentioning the person of the sovereign was not yet entirely established the commons expressed great displeasure at this unusual license they sequestered wentworth from the house and committed him prisoner to the sergeant-at-arms they even ordered him to be examined by a committee consisting of all those members who were also members of the privy council 
and a report to be next day made to the house this committee met in the star chamber and wearing the aspect of that arbitrary court summoned wentworth to appear before them and answer for his behaviour but though the commons had discovered so little delicacy or precaution in thus confounding their own authority with that of the star chamber wentworth better understood the principles of liberty and refused to give these councillors any account of his conduct in parliament till he were satisfied that they acted not as members of the privy council but as a committee of the house he justified his liberty of speech by pleading the rigour and hardship of the queen's messages and notwithstanding that the committee showed him by instances in other reigns that the practice of sending such messages was not unprecedented he would not agree to express any sorrow or repentance the issue of the affair was that after a month's confinement the queen sent to the commons informing them that from her special grace and favour she had restored him to his liberty and to his place in the house by this seeming lenity she indirectly retained the power which she had assumed of imprisoning the members and obliging them to answer before her for their conduct in parliament and sir walter mildmay endeavoured to make the house sensible of her majesty's goodness in so gently remitting the indignation which she might justly conceive at the temerity of their member but he informed them that they had not the liberty of speaking what and of whom they pleased and that indiscreet freedoms used in that house had both in the present and foregoing ages met with a proper chastisement he warned them therefore not to abuse further the queen's clemency lest she be constrained contrary to her inclination to turn an unsuccessful lenity into a necessary severity the behaviour of the two houses was in every other respect equally tame and submissive instead of a bill which was at first introduced for the reformation of the church they were contented to present a petition to her majesty for that purpose and when she told them that she would give orders to her bishops to amend all abuses and if they were negligent she would herself by her supreme power and authority over the church give such redress as would entirely satisfy the nation the parliament willingly acquiesced in this sovereign and peremptory decision though the commons showed so little spirit in opposing the authority of the crown they maintained this session their dignity against an encroachment of the peers and would not agree to a conference which they thought was demanded of them in an irregular manner they acknowledged however with all humbleness such is their expression the superiority of the lords they only refused to give that house any reason for their proceedings and asserted that where they altered a bill sent them by the peers it belonged to them to desire a conference not the upper house to require it the commons granted an aid of one subsidy and two fifteenths mildmay in order to satisfy the house concerning the reasonableness of this grant 
entered into a detail of the queen's past expenses in supporting the government and of the increasing charges of the crown from the daily increase in the price of all commodities he did not however forge to admonish them that they were to regard this detail as the pure effect of the queen's condescension since she was not bound to give them any account of how she employed her treasure End of section 20, chapter 40, part 7.